0: The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org.
1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food and food. Health and Agriculture. And today I'm delighted to have as our guest, Mr. Paul Kervick. Paul is currently the co-founder and one of the directors of Awakening Sanctuary, a non educational and charitable organization, and its major program is the Living Well Residential Care and Assisted Living Home in Bristol, Vermont. Paul, welcome.
0: Thank you very much, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I wanted to have you on because... Somehow we found each other, and we started talking about the healthcare system, and we were talking about your role, my perceptions, observations of us both, about how people are fed in institutions, and you told me about New Beginnings, you told me about your sanctuary, and how you are feeding residents organic food, and your books are in the black.
0: Yes, absolutely. Food, of course, is, in in our minds, medicine, and we are what we eat, and all health begins and ends at the cells, and how our bodies function is through the fuel we feed them. So, to us, it's pretty basic, and when you're dealing with a vulnerable population, actually, when you're dealing with any population, the better we can eat the better chance our bodies and our physical health and all our health has a chance to be vital and sustainable.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about how you got into your work with residential care and tell me about your facility.
0: Absolutely. It's actually kind of a fun story. I was sitting around speaking to my daughter about this, trying to figure out how I ended up in assisted living and residential care. What began me on this path was back in grad school, studying education and consciousness, and I was becoming a new dad at the time and had just got out of finishing my military service and was working in a family business in Rhode Island, and the only options I had was to go to the hospital, and in the course of my studies, we had some friends uh, who'd come from Europe, and they said, wow, you're going to have your children in a hospital. What's that about? (laughs) And I said, well, you know, it didn't make too much sense to me because 90% of all births worldwide are risk-free, and 90% of the 10% of births that are at risk can be screened out in the first trimester. And someone who's looking at social systems and education, I was looking at, well, as a business person, why would we be delivering 100% of the service based on 1% of the risk? And... It was really also clear to me that, you know, life is a series of changes. You know, we come in and we're born into this world and the rest of our lives were constantly changing. Every cell in our body is changing and yet as a culture, our social systems, particularly around health, were based on controlling things and focused on illness. So it wasn't making sense that we should start life by treating it like a problem, in an illness, and then building a social delivery system, which is the birthing care, through a model of illness, which is high cost and high technology. So we began the first alternative birthing center on the East Coast called New Beginnings. And it was out of that experience where our greater vision was to continue the spectrum of life by having support and education for families to choose how to deal with the changes in their life, the first change being coming into life, being born, and then also having support surfaces as families went through rites of passage of the teen years and you know going through divorces if that happened, and at the other end of life, when we passed back to spirit. And our vision was that we'd have a center that could basically support people in making healthy choices on all those levels of their lives. Fast forward now to this point in my life. My kids are grown, I have grandchildren, and I was saying, you know, as I'm present and have a mom who's elderly and dealing with end of life kind of issues, it just, and I was volunteering up at nursing homes, and I bless the people that work there. Everybody does as good a job as they know how, but the system of health care provided for that point in our lives is once again based on control and illness and based on pharmaceutical approaches. And I know, traveling around the world, that most of the world does not deliver their health care this way. And it didn't make sense to us. So I said with a group of friends, we heard about a residential care home that had been operated by a couple for 20 years, and they were tired and selling the real estate And we're looking for places to place some elders. And they called us, my wife, and and we were interested in looking at maybe this could be a business that we could base on universal principles, the same kind of principles we based our birthing center on, but do it for aging. And a huge part of the community that we were located in, Bristol, which is a very small community, But nevertheless, there was interest in these elders, and it would be a shame to just parcel them out to nursing homes. So a few people got together and approached the bank, and they bought the real estate. And we had our nonprofit educational center that was focused on anything that helps individuals, families, and communities to be vital and sustainable. So this fit perfectly within our umbrella, and we began a journey which now is just over our sixth year of trying to support aging, healthy aging in community that was truly holistic and integrated and sustainable.
1: Paul, I think that this model is so humane. You must have a very long waiting list.
0: We do have a waiting list. And at the same time, in this kind of business, if you want to call it that, it's very interesting. We are a small home. We have 15 beds, and we usually try to keep one or two open for respite or hospice. Our philosophy is that the people that come to live at Living Well are family, and we work with them as long as they choose to be here, right up to their last breath. So we integrate and work with our local hospice. The, the only condition where someone might risk out is if they had, say, a severe Alzheimer, where they were becoming violent, and danger to themselves or our residents, or if they were choosing intensive medical intervention when they get the end-of-their-life choices, um, that we aren't licensed to do. In Vermont, uh, level one is hospital, level two is nursing home, and level three is residential care and assisted living. And we also have what they call enhanced residential care uh approval from the state licensing, which allows us to give nursing home level of care, but there are, are certain conditions around that. So we try to have this be their home, and they can be here uh, as long as they, right up to their last breath, if they choose.
1: Well, let's talk about what makes this home unique, in addition to what you've already described. Yes. Certainly, you mentioned that when you were first getting into this business, you were told that you had to have a certain very small percentage of Medicaid patients because otherwise you couldn't stay in the black. And you've actually found that you can be in the black and have a much larger proportion. Two thirds of your residents, if I read the news release correctly, are actually Medicaid eligible. Yes. Or Am, am I, I, excuse me, I misstated that. It's Medicare.
0: Well, it's, yeah, <laughs> the, the Medicaid is the is the federal, you know, program that deals with low income people. So if if your income levels are such, then you qualified for Medicaid, that's uh you had it right the first time what we're talking about. Medicare is also of course involved in this, but the Medicaid is the f- part that focuses on the, the low income folks. I see. Typically in the industry, if you look, you know, throughout the whole United States, the rule of thumb and this is just you know, what you hear in the industry, is they like to see in their census of residence about two-thirds private pay or private insurance and then one-third the low-income Medicaid. That's kind of standard formula for being able to financially be sustainable. And we know even at some of those, the, the industry is having real challenges now to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our case... We actually have had the opposite percentage. We've had basically two-thirds of our people, and it's as high as 80% at times, that are Medicaid, uh, Medicare clients, and we have been from from day one operating in the black.
1: Everybody's Um, wondering how you do it. (laughs)
0: That's a good question. This, to me, is about consciousness, and I want to try to ground that for you but it has to do truly with the value of each person. And in our culture, we talked a little bit earlier about the birthing uh, system, and we're now talking about the end-of-life social systems that are available. These systems have been based on control, and they've been based on a model of illness, and the focus is always cost, the dollar. That being said... If you look how nature operates, and you look how any business that lives that that lasts a long, long time, they basically understand how to manage change, to steer change, rather than controlling. And if you look at the average age of our Fortune 500 companies, uh, it's about 40.3 years. These are systems designed to fail because they're not based on coherent principles, which means our focus, while money is certainly something we look at and do a really good job of managing costs, that is not our focus in our business. Our focus is the value of our elders and that each of our elders is a amazing being who's had an amazing life, and if they so choose, our job is to help them connect to their passion, to their creativity, to who they are and what they are, what they'd like to accomplish, what they'd like to share in their lives, and then to help them share that back into our communities. I have some very good friends who do a lot of traveling, and they had come back from Africa, traveling in some of the villages. and they were meeting in, in, in va- way out in the outback. and they said one of the things that was very moving to them, they went into this one village, and there was like a round hut, and um, they came into it, and the family was there. And the grandmother, who was blind, who was incontinent and basically on a cot, she couldn't really do much. But she was there in the center of the hut next to the cook stove, so she was warm. The children would come in and come back from school and touch her and tell her about their days. The, the young men would come back from hunting, and they'd tell their stories, and the grandmother was there, and she was sharing her stories about growing up and, and looking, and she was intimately involved in the life of that family and that community. In our culture, where the, the focus has become money, and all that focus on money has got families working two and three jobs, it's stressful, our health deteriorates, we're eating fast food, which doesn't have nutrition, and all of that is leading us to a place where we're not sustainable as individuals and our communities are suffering. So when you look at the way the universe works, that we're all connected and that our community is a reflection of our own health. And so if we want to change anything, the only thing we can change is ourselves. So in our business model, it was the group of people that came together that had a similar vision, that our elders were valuable, that they deserved to have a safe and healthy life right to their last breath, and that our job, that was our focus, not the money. And so we looked at the food we served. We looked at the physical spaces that housed our elders at our center. We looked at the community that was around us. We looked at the the land and the way we grew our food and how we grew that food. We looked at service. You know, if if you're not breathing back into the community, you die. And and putting people in a a locked ward somewhere on pharmaceuticals, and and I I volunteered at nursing homes and and walk in and I see people sitting in front of the TV and it's just not living and no wonder people want (laughs)
1: to leave
0: so we said, that's our focus. It's, it's the quality of life. It's the value of our elders. It's helping them be as happy, healthy, and vital as possible. And we can do that. And when your focus is there, the economics take care of themselves. And now I can give you one example.
1: Well, let me first just interrupt you for one moment because I just have to remind our listeners, we are having a fascinating discussion with Paul Kervick, who is the co-founder and one of the directors of Awakening Sanctuary, which is a nonprofit educational and charitable organization, its major program being the Living Well Residential Care and Assisted Living Home in Bristol, Vermont. Please, Paul, go on.
0: Absolutely. So what we believe to be true, with love and gratitude being primary principles here, and the fact that life has changed, that if we can focus on the basic elements of life, and you could think of that in terms of the earth, it's fire, air, earth, and water. So in terms of our elders, the water, the food, the physical spaces they live in, these, and, and air you could call spirit or communication, it's, it's helping each person connect to that part of them that's eternal and, and then sharing that back into our communities. So if we're only dependent on insurance, then, you know, we know what's happening. The world corporatization financial systems are collapsing. Our healthcare systems are collapsing because they're not based on these eternal principles. So as we can focus on our elders in serving them healthy food that they can actually grow themselves if they choose to, what we can't grow ourselves, we can support our local farmers and our local community By supporting our local, we have here community-supported agriculture, local farmers that grow organic food. Mm -hmm. We also have gleaning opportunities at the end of the year. In our own gardens, what we can't eat, we share with other people in our community. When we're doing our classes, whether it's laugh yoga or tai chi or art or music, we can share that in the community So if people want to come and take a class, they could make a donation or pay a fee. It's another way. There's giving and receiving in the community, and we're keeping our elders in our community. In Vermont, there's a big movement about helping people stay in their homes Mm -hmm. as long as possible rather than moving into nursing homes, and we think that's fine. However, even in that case... Many of these folks might have one or two visits a week, someone making sure people are taking their medication, getting one warm meal a day, but often they're still home alone. And so part of our model is that we're integrating and finding these folks and inviting them to participate with our elders so if and when they get to a point in their lives where they need more care, then they already have a community, they always already have a connection to living well, so it's an easier transition uh, in life. So that's the, the basic principles. And I wanted to give you one specific because we recently had a visit from the, some of our state legislatures and the um, Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services for the state of Vermont because we've been interested in, of course, being a nonprofit in sharing what we're learning with other communities in Vermont and beyond. This isn't rocket science. It takes a shift in consciousness and a commitment, um, and a different focus in our business model. And they are very interested, and they're saying, well, like you asked earlier, how how can you do this? How can you afford this? There's one one perfect example, and it had to do with some steroidal inhalers that our res- some of our residents were on. I think Medicaid or Medicare, whichever was paying for those, I think it's a $1,000 a month. So picture all of us paying for insurance, and this is a federally funded program, and you're paying that, And because they're on these steroidal inhalers, which are quite powerful drugs, many of these residents also had to take some other kind of pharmaceuticals to help counteract side effects. And our naturopath, because we are an integrated medical approach, we use the best and least intrusive of whatever can work for people if they choose to work that way, had a um, a homeopathic tincture, I believe, that was $60 for a four-month supply, for all covered all three of the residents or four of the residents, and we had better results, and that didn't even include the cost savings from the other pharmaceuticals for the other side effects, and you could just imagine scaling that up to all of the other facilities across this country. Just that one change, one shift, could make a huge difference.
1: That's a tremendous story, and I should also let our listeners know that in 2008, you actually received the Governor's Excellence Award as Vermont's program champion, recognized as being an extraordinary role model for healthy aging. You know, One of the things that you had described to me at an earlier time when we were having a conversation, you said that you had discovered that drumming was very effective in helping to control Alzheimer's disease. And I thought that was fascinating. If You know, anybody who's ever experienced a drumming circle, for example, or the meditative effects of drumming, you can see how it would be really very drug-like. And I wonder if you can describe that.
0: Absolutely. The drumming, if you think about it, we're all vibration. And every cell in our bodies vibrates. And this research was done by the VA. And they were showing the effect of drumming on the brain, and on the heart, and on the whole body. And we had heard about this, and at the time we happened to have a group of young 20-something-year-olds who were traveling through town who were artists. They didn't have a place to live. We had a big backyard, and they were traveling around with a yurt. And I said, how about we do an exchange? We'll let you put your yurt here for the winter, and then you can come in and, and help work with our elders. And they thought that would be great. So we thought, well, what they're going to do do art, which was wonderful. So we began that, and at evening, we heard this drumming out in their yurt, and we went out and said, you've got a bunch of drums here. He said, oh yeah, we, we're, we have a drumming circle. I said, well, how would you like to come in and um, do that with our elders? And this was actually our, our director, uh, D. DeLuca, our administrator, who had, who had learned about this and suggested that we, we bring them in. Well, long story short, the elders took to this drumming and it was changing lives. We had people um, calling up families who they hadn't talked to in a while. They had severe dementia. We had physical improvement in their, their health, blood pressure. Uh, I mean, all kinds of things just from this drumming. And it got to be where they wanted to write their own songs. They started going out, and we, we performed at farmer's markets. They were in for two hours drumming in the 4th of July parade, and when the state heard about this and we got this award, we actually went up to the state house where the governor presented the award to our elders and they made him a little drumstick and a drum and he'd never drummed a day in his life and actually joined in while they were chanting and drumming and we were invited to go to other nursing homes and share with them as well. So things like that is a way our elders can give back to the community and the community can give back to our elders.
1: You know, I think it's really beautiful the way you describe elders as storyholders and wisdom keepers. And I think in other cultures, you know, traditionally we do call upon our elders for their wisdom. And it's, it's sad now, I think specifically of farmers, where the average age of the, your average typical farmer is in their mid-50s. And we think about all the institutional knowledge they have about growing food. Because, of course, food is where I'm mostly focused. But you think about all the wisdom, the collective wisdom, that if we don't tap into, we're going to lose it.
0: And this is so, so true. And I I did want to make sure we covered, in addition to the food, which is also huge for, for us as well, but there's one other principle I hadn't mentioned that's very important to speak about, because we are actually the only nonprofit in this country that has adopted this. And we spent four years looking for a system of governance, decision-making, and organization that was actually based on coherent principles. And this is a huge difference in any other business you'll see. And it basically says that every person in Living Well is of equal value to our living system. Just like if you wanted to sail a boat across the ocean, the person that's up there with the binoculars seeing where you're going, the person down in the engine room making sure the engine is running, they have equal value or that ship isn't going to make it from point A to point B. But our social systems of governance and organization and decision making are not based on those principles. And Gerard Endenberg, who we finally found from the Netherlands, who was studying cybernetics and chaos theory in nature, looked at how the earth, how food, how nature grows and changes and deals with efficiency and basically came up with a system of governance that was based on these universal principles. And he went back and researched every governance system, social organizing system since the beginning of time, And if you ask most people to say, what's our our most evolved system? And we'd all say, of course, democracy. But even in democracy, if if I have one more vote than you, I win, you lose. And what we have is a system here where every voice cannot be ignored. And any decision that's made, and in a nonprofit organization, the power lies in who sets the policies, which is typically your board of directors. So in living well... Our elders, their family members, our staff, and the directors are all part of a living system that also includes members from the community. Living well is not separate. It's part of a living community. And so all of those voices are important to be heard when it comes to making policies. So we actually have residents that sit in on our general circles. We have two staff members that actually sit on the board of directors we have outside people from the community. So this is a very hugely unique and important part of living well and why we're successful.
1: Paul, I want to thank you. I'm, I knew our time together would fly. I want to help our listeners know where they can get more information about Living Well, and uh, simply the website is www.livingwellcarehome.org. We've been speaking with Paul Kervick, who is one of the directors and co-founder of the Awakening Sanctuary, which is a non-profit, educational, and charitable organization, but your major program is the Living Well Residential Care and Assisted Living Home in Bristol, Vermont. I know I'm going to put this home on my travelogue when when I'm up in the Northeast because it's truly a remarkable system that you've created and a national model. I want to thank you so much for being my guest today, and I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us and to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Paul, thank you for making the world a better place.
0: And thank you very much, Melinda. Bless you and all your listeners, and if there's any way we can ever help and share, we're happy to do it.
1: Thank you.